Well, hey, good morning, everybody. It's good to have you here. Hope you enjoyed an extra hour of sleep last night, if you got one. And so uh, glad to have you guys here at the Medina East Campus. I just want to extend a really special welcome to you, especially if you are a guest. Just like Crystal mentioned a moment ago, if it's your first time here at the Medina East Campus, we want to say thanks for being here. Or if it's your first time uh, catching us on live stream, so if someone sent you a link, or maybe it's the first time you're interacting with us that way, we all just want to say hi to you and say thanks so much for being with us. Uh, But I did want to let you know, you are actually catching us, if you are a guest, in the fifth part of a six-part series that we have been calling Powerless to Change, Life Through uh, the Spirit. And so because you're catching us on week five of a six-part series, that means that you're almost kind of catching us at the end of a conversation. And so there's a lot uh, that we have covered so far. And so let me just see, uh, before we get into some new content here today, if I can just briefly maybe recap some of the things that we've been talking about, we've been saying in the series, uh, for those of you who are new. So uh, basically, here's what we've been talking about. Uh, In this series, we've been making this statement Uh, that the real change that God really desires is uh, really possible. And in other words, what we've been saying is that the the change, the transformation uh, that God desires to see in our lives, we said that that is actually a possibility, that is a a reality, that you can experience that change, the change that God wants. And the reason that we said that this is maybe uh, an important statement is because maybe for some of us, I think that maybe we've lived life long enough that we start to wonder whether or not it's possible for people to really change. And uh, I know I felt that way. Uh, sometimes I look at my own life and the many attempts that I have uh, seen to try to change a habit or change something that's in my life, a, a, a personality trait or characteristic, that something like that, and uh, how frustrating that can seem sometimes. Or maybe for you, uh, you look at other relationships around you, other people around you, and you start to wonder, is it actually possible for change to occur, for transformation to occur? And in this series, what we're saying is uh, that yes, yeah, uh, according to what God's word says, the real change, the real transformation that God desires is actually possible. It's actually something that is, that is attainable. Over time, gradually, it's something that, that we can experience in our life. But here's the mistake that we make, and this is what we've been talking about. We said that a lot of times, uh, the place that we go, the source that we go to to experience that transformation, is a lot of times we look to ourselves. And so we look to self-empowerment or we look to, uh, we look to change by way of self uh, kind of generation. And here's what we said. We said, when you look at scripture, what you're gonna see is the Bible's going to tell us that the power for transformation as God desires is actually not something that is self-generated, but instead it's actually something that is spirit-generated. That is to say uh, that the source of transformation in the Christian life comes from the Holy Spirit. And I know that if you are just joining us or if you're just catching us for the first time, when I say the Holy Spirit, and especially if you're someone who's investigating Jesus and maybe you're still trying to piece Christianity together, you're trying to figure that out, which by the way, if that's you, we count it such an honor that you would let us be part of that process as you're trying to figure out uh, your faith. But we said that for a lot of us who maybe you know, are new to Christianity, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, that can seem really weird can seem really bizarre. Uh, It's kind of a mystical topic. It's one of those uh, topics that is oftentimes neglected or abused or misunderstood. And so because of that, we're taking some time in this series. And really, what we're talking about is the Holy Spirit. And the question that we're trying to answer is, how are we to understand, relate to, and interact with the Holy Spirit? So we're saying, okay, if it's true that the Holy Spirit is the power for transformation in the Christian life, then how do we properly understand the Holy Spirit? How do we relate to the Holy Spirit? How do we cultivate a relationship with the Holy Spirit? So that's what we're thinking about together. And the place in the Bible that we're going to seek answers and clarity to this question is we're actually looking at Romans 8. And so I would love to uh, encourage you and invite you, if you would, with me again, open your Bibles. And we're gonna get back to Romans chapter 8 here together today. And so that'd be awesome if you got that. If you didn't, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, Page 916 in the Bibles under the chairs. Feel free to use those. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to have one so you can take one of ours home, make that a gift from us to you. All right, Romans 8. And the reason we're looking at Romans 8 is because as we've seen in this series, Romans 8 is all about the Holy Spirit. It's uh, maybe the most prominent theme in all of Romans 8 is talking about the power and the transformation that comes through the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, we've covered a lot so far over the past four weeks, but just very, very quickly, here's what we've discovered in Romans 8. We said if we want to seek to understand the Holy Spirit, we said in week one, the beginning place is this, that we have to see that the Holy Spirit is a person. 
In other words, what we said is uh, the Holy Spirit is improperly understood as an impersonal force. The Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. The Holy Spirit is not some vague, abstract you know, power. He said, no, the Holy Spirit, the Bible is going to show us, is a person, not a human, but a person. And so the, the, beginning part, the beginning point of knowing how to interact with the Holy Spirit is understanding that we come to him as a person. We interact with him relationally. Then in week two, we started talking about this. As we looked at Romans 8, we said that the Holy Spirit gives life. And we said one of the first things that should come into the mind of any honest Bible reader as it relates to the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit is in the business of giving life. This is what the Holy Spirit's done from the very beginning. Even the first page of scripture in Genesis chapter one, you see the Holy Spirit giving life. And then that led into week three, where we said that the Holy Spirit now empowers the Christian life. So in the same way that the Spirit gives life, the Spirit is the one who gives new life to the person who embraces Christ by faith. Uh, the Spirit comes into their life and now is the one who empowers the transformation that God desires. And then last week, we looked again at Romans 8, and we saw that the Holy Spirit, one of the primary ministries of the Holy Spirit, is that he testifies that those who have put their faith in Christ are God's children. And what we said is this, that one of the main ministries of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit is always trying to remind us of who we are always drawing us to that place of our identity, of our love and our acceptance that has been given to us uh, through Christ and the Spirit wants to affirm that. Now, let me just say that if any of that sounds confusing to you, if any of that sounds intriguing to you, you can always go back and listen to the previous talks in the series. All of those are free and available for you, podcast, website, app, all right? But today, as we continue thinking through how we understand and interact with the Holy Spirit, we're gonna look at a fifth aspect we're gonna see in Romans 8, And here's what we're going to see today. The Holy Spirit, we're going to see this today. The Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. All right, so how do we understand? How do we interact with? How do we relate to the Holy Spirit? Well, today I want to show you here in Romans 8 uh, that the Holy Spirit helps us in in our weakness. So what am I talking about? Well, let's take a look together. I'm actually going to read the whole passage to us uh, right now. So it's Romans 8, 18 to 28. So we're going to read 10 verses. And you're going to see, I'm just going to go ahead and warn you a little bit. In these 10 verses, it's pretty dense. It's pretty dense. As Romans 8 is, it's very, very dense. But then after we're done reading it, we'll circle back around and hopefully we'll make some sense of what we just read. All right, sound good? All right, so here we go. Romans 8, starting off in verse 18. If you've got your Bibles in front of you, you can read with me. Here's what it says. So the Apostle Paul, uh, who wrote the book of Romans, says this. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Absolutely amazing passage of the Bible, but as you can tell, very dense uh, 10 verses. And so how do we begin understanding what's being communicated here? How do we begin understanding what this is telling us about the Holy Spirit? Well, I think a good starting place might be to give an illustration to help add some clarity of what I think is he's saying here. So I remember uh, it was over 12 years ago now, just a little over 12 years ago, uh, when my wife and I first uh, found out that, uh, that we were expecting, we were expecting our first child. And, uh, and so my oldest son, my wife and I have four kids now, and our oldest son is 12. And so it was a while ago now, but I remember uh, when that happened, when we found out that, that she was pregnant. 
And if you've ever uh, experienced that or you've been through something like that before, uh, you know that that is, uh, it, it's, it's all kinds of emotions that come uh, with a discovery like that. And so we were uh, obviously very excited about it and also um, nervous and scared and, and also just like didn't know what the future was going to look like in, in, in light of this new reality. And so there's all that that was kind of going on. But as I was reading this passage, I couldn't help but remember that time. And the reason is because, you know, uh, pregnancy, I don't know if you guys ever thought about this too long. Pregnancy is actually a really bizarre thing. It is, I mean, for a lot of different reasons that I don't need to get into all of them. Uh, but at least for this reason, I think it's really weird because I, there's almost nothing else like it. Where pregnancy in some ways introduces an overlap of two seemingly separate realities. And, and here's what I mean by that, all right, is that you have these two realities that seem very separate. One is what is now, what is present, what is the current circumstance, and then one is what is yet to come, which, which does not yet exist. And I could just tell you, before we found out we were pregnant, my wife and I, we had, th- these two things were very separate. So before we found out we were pregnant, we had a very defined now. And what was our now? Well, at least at that point in our life, we were newlyweds. We'd been married for just a couple of years. Uh, we both had full-time jobs at that time. We had just got our first house in Akron. And so we were living our house in Akron. And our now, what it looked like is it was, it was just the two of us. It was the two of us. And so our house, it was the two of us. Uh, every article of clothing in the house was one of the two of us. That was it. All the rooms were ours. That's how it worked. And so we had access to all of those things. And it was, it was just the two of us. And so that's what, that's what we experienced. That was our very defined now. But we had a hope. Uh, when we first got married, we had a desire and we had a hope that one day, God willing, it wouldn't just be the two of us. Maybe we would be able to start a family and introduce new people into our home and help that whole thing grow. But that was not a reality that existed yet. So we had our now and we had our not yet. Now, what's interesting is the moment that my wife showed me the pregnancy test and we found out that it was positive and that we were going to be expecting, all of a sudden, what happened was it introduced a, a new, a new a whole new circumstance in which the not yet had now begun to penetrate into the now. And so um, when that happened, our now, our current circumstance, looked a lot like it did before. It was, we still had our jobs. It was still just the two of us. We were still in our house. But now there was something very real. There was something that was very hopeful. There was something that was very true, but we couldn't see it yet. We couldn't see it. And, and now all of a sudden we were living in this place. And here's what I was thinking about is that this space right here, this is pregnancy. That, that's all the pregnancy. Pregnancy is the ever growing, ever overlapping, converging of the now and the not yet. And as I was thinking about that, I thought to myself, what character, this is such a unique space because what characterizes this spy? And the answer is a lot of things characterize this, this place. A lot of things. Um, uh, anticipation, uh, preparation, right? There's showers, there's clothes to be bought, there's, there's things to be put together. Preparation is in this spot. Um, discomfort is a big part of what happens here. Food cravings, odd and weird food cravings. A lot of ice cream happens in here, uh, in this place right here. And there's this, there's just this, this weird thing that's happening where the now and the not yet are great. Now, what's fascinating is that the longer that time goes by and the more these things converge, I think this space right here becomes more and more defined by discomfort. It becomes more and more defined by unease. And ultimately, when both of them come together, when the now becomes the not yet, I think, I mean, we all know how this works. When that happens... It is, it, it, the whole entryway into that is one that is full of pain and discomfort and groaning and all of those things. I think, man, childbirth has to be one of the most painful experiences in, in the human experience. I'm not even qualified to talk about it. And some of you are like, you're darn right you're not. And I know, I'm, I'm not saying I am, all right? So lay off. I get it. And, but yeah, that, when that happens, then all of a sudden, though, there's this joy. There's this joy. And there's this new life, and then the new life then overshadows uh, all of what that experience was kind of going through that. Now, why do I tell you that? Why do I give you that illustration? Well, the reason I tell you that and the reason I choose that illustration is because this is actually the exact illustration the Apostle Paul uses in this passage. I don't know if you noticed, but in this passage, the Apostle Paul says that creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. 
That's what he says. And he's giving us this incredible analogy. In fact, look with me again at verse 18. Start in verse 18. Here's what Paul says. He says, I consider, this is how he begins. I consider. That's actually a really interesting word. I want to just explain that real quick. The word consider is a very fascinating word. Some of your translations say reckon, I reckon. And it actually is a mathematical word. It is the word logizomai, and it literally means I calculate. It means I'm calculating. I'm making a mathematical, I'm, I'm making a mathematical process and assessment on this. And he says, I consider. I'm weighing it out. I'm doing the math. And he says, I consider that our, now notice this, that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with a glory, with the glory that is going to be revealed in us. So what is he talking about here? Paul is comparing and contrasting and calculating two seemingly separate realities. And what are they? Well, he talks about the now. And what is the now? I consider that our present sufferings, what is now, our present sufferings, aren't worth comparing with what? With a glory that is yet to be revealed. A glory that's to be revealed. It's what's not yet. It's what is to come. So what exactly is Paul talking about here and what does this have to do with the Holy Spirit at all? Well, I think to understand what this is gonna tell us about the Spirit, we have to first understand something about these two realities. So let me just start by talking about what he means when he says our present sufferings. So what is the now that he is referring to? Well, I believe um, when the Apostle Paul says our present sufferings, he's actually talking about probably every variation of suffering that we experience in this life presently. Uh, however, I think if you look at this passage, you're going to see that specifically, he's going to talk about three, three. And what are they? Well, first off, notice he's going to say part of our present sufferings is that there's brokenness in creation. In other words, creation itself, part of the, the now that we live in, and we all know this, part of the now that we live in right now is that there's suffering. And why is there suffering? Well, in part, it's because there's brokenness in the creation. Do you notice in this passage how many times the Apostle Paul talks about creation and do you notice the words that he uses to describe the condition of creation? So just notice with me, verse 19, creation is waiting in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. He goes on. He says, for the creation, and by that, by the way, when he says creation, he means the creation. He means that which is created. He means nature. He means the ground. He means the, the world that we live in, in itself. He says, the creation was subjected to frustration. Some of your translations say, creation was subjected to futility. And then he goes on and he says, creation is going to be liberated from its bondage to decay. And then he says, in the next verse, he says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. Now, I know that might sound confusing when we read all of that, but I want you just to think about what did he just say about creation? He said, creation is waiting and expectation. He said that creation is, is, is subject to frustration. He said that creation is in bondage to decay currently. He says that creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth. What is all that talking about? Well, I think all that language is pointing to the brokenness that we see in creation. Listen, um, whenever, whenever you look in the Bible, you're going to see that the, the, the Bible is going to give us a description of what's wrong in this world. And part of what's wrong in this world, and I think we all sense this, that as beautiful as this world is, as beautiful as creation is, that it seems like there's something that's wrong. There's something that's off. There's something that's broken. And the Bible would affirm this. It would say that's true. And part of that brokenness is that creation itself has been subjected to frustration. If you're interested to know the backstory behind that, by the way, you could read Genesis chapter three. Genesis three tells us that when humankind rebelled against God, not only did that introduce brokenness into humanity, but it actually introduced brokenness into the ground itself. Creation is broken. And so what's that mean? Well, it means this. It means now when we see things like devastating hurricanes and when we see things like wildfires that that, uh, that, that wipe out entire communities and take the lives of people. When we see those type of things and we say that, that's, that there's suffering that comes as a result of those things and we say that's not the way it's supposed to be, we're right about that. Creation itself has been subject to frustration. It is underneath the bondage of decay is what the Bible's going to say. And part of the human suffering that we face, part of our experience is that the brokenness of creation increases the suffering that we experience. Not just that, though. Part of our present suffering is that there's brokenness in creation. We're also going to see 
Part of our suffering, one of the contributing factors, is the brokenness, not just in creation, but in our own bodies, the brokenness of our bodies. Uh, This is actually exactly what he says. Look at Romans 8.23. This is not, not only so, not just creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Now, when he says that, the redemption of our bodies, he's talking about our physical, literal bodies, the redemption of our bodies. And what he's referring to here is the brokenness that all of us experience in our physical, our bodies are wearing down, our bodies are breaking down, they are subject to illness, to sickness, to death and decay. And because of that, we suffer. There's tragedy that we all experience in this life. Uh, There's a parallel passage, I think this is so awesome. The Apostle Paul gives us a fantastic metaphor to describe the physical bodies that we live in. Here's what he says in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, we know that if the earthly tent that we live in is destroyed, so I think this is so helpful. The Apostle Paul says that our physical bodies, he says they're kind of like a tent, like an earthly tent, which I think is so helpful. Think, think about a tent for a minute. What do you know about a tent? A tent is temporary, it's flimsy, it's not, spo- it's not intended to be something that you stay in for a long time, right? And so he says, he says, we live in this earthly tent. He says, but if that's destroyed, we have a building. We actually have a permanent building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Now look what he goes on to say. For while we're in this tent, I just think this is so great, we groan. Do you notice the common language to Romans? He says, we groan and we're burdened because we don't want to be unclothed, but clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling is what he says in this passage. I think this is such an awesome metaphor. He says that our bodies, our physical bodies on this earth are like tents and they break down and they're flimsy and they're not intended to be a permanent dwelling place. I was just curious, I I was reading this. When's the last time, just think about this. When's the last time you slept in a tent? You thought about that recently? When's the last time? Just think about that. For me, the last time I slept in a tent was in August and I went camping with my kids and uh, it'd been a while since I'd been camping. And can I tell you what a, what a big part of my tent experience included? Can I tell you what it included? A lot of groaning, lots and lots of groaning. A lot of uh, feeling burdened and longing for my bed. That's what happened in that experience. And, and listen, the Bible's gonna say our bodies are, that's what they are, they're temporary. And they're, they are inclined to over time wear down. Now I know some of you are younger folks in this room And right now you're in a spot where you don't mind the tent life. It's okay with you because your tent's still in good repair. But I'm just gonna tell you, just wait. Just wait, it's coming. It's coming. Your tent's gonna break down. It will. You know, over time, things on your tent are gonna start sagging. It's coming, right? The fabric on your tent's gonna start wearing out. Your tent's gonna start leaking. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? And uh, I'm just saying, man, I just, I preach truth. That's all, right? And it's true. But the, Bi- the Bible is going to say that that's what's happening. Our bodies are decaying. They're breaking down, which means this, which means what? It means that we're subject to illness. We're subject to sickness. We're subject to, uh, to tragedy. And this, in- this brings suffering into our lives, not just when we are ill, but when others that we love are ill. And when others uh, die and, and, and they wear down and their bodies do those, listen, I know for some of us, maybe we're even a place like that where there's suffering that's in our life right now because of sickness or illness or tragedy. Even for some of you, uh, at the beginning, when I gave my illustration about our pregnancy, for you, that might have been hard to hear. And maybe for you, it's because a reminder of, for you, a tragedy, maybe a, a lost child or maybe a lost pregnancy or some of that. And listen, here's the point. We suffer and part of, part of our present sufferings are because of the brokenness in creation. Part of our present sufferings are because of the brokenness in our bodies. Not just that. Part of our present sufferings also come in the brokenness because of sin. Brokenness because of sin. Earlier in Romans, we looked at this. The Holy Spirit, what he desires to do is he wants to liberate us from our bondage to sin. But the truth is that the present reality we live in right now, sin is very much a, a strong reality in the world that we live in. And we see it all around us. Whenever we open up our news app or we turn on the news, what do we see? We don't just see the brokenness of our bodies. We don't just see brokenness in creation. We see brokenness because of sin. We see the hurtful, harmful, terrible, sinful things that humankind does to each other. We see that and that increases our suffering. We don't just see it in the media. We see it in our own families. 
We see how sinful and hurtful decisions can break marriages, how they can hurt children, how children who choose sin, how that hurts parents, how it breaks things apart. We don't just see it in our relationships. We see it in ourselves. We see it. The struggle with sin is real and it lies within us. And the Bible's gonna say, this is our present sufferings. This is it. Now, let me just say, before we move on, if you're someone who's investigating Jesus or you're trying to piece together Christianity, I just wanna try to clear up a misconception that people sometimes have about Christians that I think is a false uh, caricature. And it's this. Sometimes people would say that Christians are um, hopelessly and naively optimistic people, that we deny that the world is a broken place and we just slap on a smile and we're just always like these happy, optimistic people. And I just wanna tell you, I think that's a false caricature because Christians, according to scripture, Christians are people who do, do, do not in any way deny the brokenness of the place that we live. Christians are people who would look and say, no, the world is more broken than we know and it's more complicated than we understand. There is not a quick and easy answer to the brokenness that we see. And Christians would say that, but here's the, the key difference. Christians don't stop here. We can't stop here. If all there is is the now, where does that lead you? If this is all we have, well, I'll tell you where this leads you. It leads you to fatalism. It leads you to despair. And at best, it leads you to denial, where you just try to do your best to ignore the reality of our present circumstance. But the Bible never, ever once denies that this is true. However, it doesn't stop there. Because the apostle Paul says, yes, there is our present sufferings, but he says there is, though, a glory there's a glory that is to come. There is what is not yet. And what does that look like? What is the not yet characterized by? Well, I think pretty quickly, you can see it here in this passage, the not yet is characterized first and foremost by a new creation. The Bible's gonna say creation is broken, but what's coming is that there's going to be a new creation. You actually see this right in Romans chapter eight. Look what it says again here in verse 20 and 21. The creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be, look at this, liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. Now, what's that talking about when it says that creation is gonna be liberated from its bondage to decay? That's actually talking about something the Bible speaks about in other places. It's talking about the promise of a new creation. Uh, one, of the, one of the best passages, I think, that talks about this is actually in Revelation. So in Revelation 21, it gives us a picture of what's not yet. It gives us a picture of what is coming. And here's what it says in Revelation 21. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And then later it's, it's described, it says that in that place, God himself will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death. There'll be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain for the old order of things has passed away. What's this talking about? Here's what it's saying. It's saying, listen, yes, creation is broken, true, but there's something awesome. There's something awesome that is coming. And there is something that um, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has comprehended what God has prepared for those who love him. And that's what he's talking about here. He says, this is coming. So there's a new creation, not just that, what else is not yet? The redemption of our bodies. The redemption of our bodies. This is exactly what he says in verse 23. He says, we eagerly await our redemption of our bodies. What is coming? The redemption of our bodies. Now, what's that mean? He's talking about the physical, the physical redemption of our bodies. You know, I think one of, the, one of the teachings in the Bible that I think is often neglected, and I think it's unfortunate that it is because the Bible is very clear about this, is in places like 1 Corinthians 15, in places like 2 Corinthians 5, in places like 1 Thessalonians 4, and here in Romans 8, the Bible is going to say that for those who put their hope in Jesus Christ, there is a physical, bodily resurrection that is in store for us. The redemption, literally, the redemption of our bodies. If you don't believe me, read 1 Corinthians 15. It's so clear in that passage that in the same way that Jesus was raised from the dead, literally, historically, bodily, those who trust in Christ have the same hope that is coming for us. So the Bible's gonna say, what is part of our hope? Part of our hope is the redemption of our bodies. And then this brings us, when we recognize the redemption of our bodies, not only does that give us hope that 
we will triumph over illness and victory and disease and all those things. But the, I think the hope is that we will also be reunited with those who we've lost in Christ. And we will see them again in the realest sense. We will see them again. And then on top of that, our not yet is that we will be conformed to Christ's likeness. Later on in Romans 8, the apostle Paul is gonna say, those who have put their hope in Jesus are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son which means what? Which means we'll be glorified, which basically means this. We will be fully and finally and forever done with sin. Sin will be gone. Sin will be gone. And, and we can get more into that, but here's what Paul's gonna say. Paul's gonna say, when I consider these two things, when I calculate it, when I add it up, he says, the weight of what is coming so far outweighs the present sufferings that we face that they're not even worth comparing. They're not even worth comparing. This will absolutely crush the scale, is what he says. Now, some of you might be saying, okay, that's starting to make sense to me. What does this have to do with the Holy Spirit? Well, this is, I have to say all of this so that I can get to this, because this is where verse 23 comes in. And verse 23, I think, is so awesome. So look what he says in verse 23. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, verse 23, but we ourselves who have, and this is so key, the first fruits of the spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship and the redemption of our bodies. So here's what the Bible's gonna say. When we put our hope in Christ, we are given the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says that the Holy Spirit is the first fruits. He is the first fruits. Of what? He is the first fruits of a new creation. He is the first fruits of, of the Spirit Himself. Now, some of you are like, what does that mean? What does first fruits mean? It's kind of a complicated idea for us, but let me see if I can explain it. Here's what the first fruits are the first fruits refer to the fruits uh, that came first. So it was, which I'm, I know it's like profound teaching here at the Medina East Campus. I get it. But it actually, that's what it was. And so I want you to think of back in the first century, if you were a farmer, and you had spent all your time preparing for a harvest, and you had waited patiently, and you'd worked hard for it. And just imagine one day, one of your kids or one of your workers runs in, and they have the first piece of fruit. What is that? What is that? Well, here's what the first fruit is. The first fruit is a guarantee. The first fruit is the beginning of a greater harvest that is sure to follow. There's much more to come. In other words, if I could put it this way, the Bible says that through Jesus, when the Spirit comes into our life, this is what begins to happen. That now, the not yet, because of the Holy Spirit, begins to infiltrate the now. And now this promise of this hope that is to come begins, begins its work inside of us, and now we live in the space between. We live in this spot. And so Christ followers live in the tension of the present sufferings that we face right now and this glory that is to be revealed. And because of the Holy Spirit, the things that are coming are already true about us now. But increasingly, as these two spaces converge, uh, we will experience things in this, in this spot. So what happens in, what, what characterizes this place? I think just like pregnancy, what characterizes that place is things like uh, anticipation, preparation, hope, groaning, suffering, longing. I think that's what happens in this space. And the more these things converge, the more that we, we experience the now, the sufferings of now, and the more we experience the hope that the Holy Spirit gives, I think that it increases our unease. It increases our discomfort in this world and the groaning that we experience in those things. I like the way one commentator put it. His name is Derek Thomas. And he said, for followers of Jesus, he said, we live in two zip codes. And the two zip codes is that, yes, we experience the sufferings of this present world. We live in that place, and that's very real. But at the same time, because of the spirit within, inside of us, we have the first fruits of the new creation that's already at work within us. And so the Bible's going to say that we, what do we do now? Well, look at verse 24. In this hope, we're saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, if we hope for that which we don't see yet, what we know is coming, he says, we're gonna wait for it patiently. Now, here's where the Holy Spirit comes in. So watch this. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Now, this is what's so key. The Bible's gonna say that in this space, in this space of the now, the present sufferings, and the not yet, the glory that is gonna be revealed, as we live in this tension, the Bible says the Holy Spirit is gonna help us 
The Holy Spirit is going to help us. And how does he help us? Well, I got to tell you, this word that's used here is such an important word. And I think it's just, it bears digging into a little bit. And so uh, the word helps is super powerful and it's super important. And I think that, you know, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Sometimes when we talk about the Holy Spirit being our helper, we get this picture in our mind that like the Holy Spirit's our little buddy. Like he's going to come and help me, little little helper spirit. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago. That's the wrong idea to have in your mind. The word helps here is such a cool word. And I actually want to just kind of show it to you. Can I show it to you in the Greek language? It's a crazy long word. So here it is in the Greek language. It's that word right there. And I'm not even going to attempt to try to pronounce that word in front of you. Uh, But here's what I think is so cool about this word. It actually, commentators point out, is a word that the Apostle Paul made up. So it's not a real word. And by the way, the Apostle Paul does this a lot. He makes words up. And the reason he does that is because he's taking three concepts and he's smashing them together into one word. That's what he's doing. And so what does the word mean? Well, he actually uses a verb, which means help. But then he uses, he puts two prepositions on it. The first one is soon. It's the preposition soon, which means with. And then the next one is the preposition anti or anti, which is against. And so do you see what he's saying? Here's what he's saying. He's saying the Holy Spirit helps us by working with us and against us. He works for and he works against us, which seems like such a crazy paradoxical thought. What is the Spirit doing? He's saying the Spirit's going to help you by doing what? By working with you and working against you. By pushing and pulling and doing both. I don't know what I'm doing with my hands right now, but it's something like this, right? That's what he's doing. And I actually think that might be a confusing concept for some of us, but I actually think it's really helpful. Um, The illustration that came to my mind when I was reading this was I couldn't help but uh, remember this time where I needed to move this refrigerator. And uh, did you guys ever move something, like like something you had to move, and it was just like, it was just ridiculously heavy, like just stupid heavy. And this refrigerator was like this. I don't know why it was so heavy. I don't know if it had ice in it or something, but it was really heavy. And so I knew I couldn't move it by myself. So I recruited the strongest friend that I have, right? That this guy is just freakishly strong. And so he was like, sure, I'll come and help you. And so we went to move this refrigerator and he came and he helped me. And I put help in quotations because by helping, what I mean is he kind of just did it and I just sort of watched him. Like that's kind of how it works. So I had my end. I had the, the, the lighter end. He had the heavier end. And I remember at one point we were going down the stairs and I just remember thinking like, I could take my hands off this. Like he is carrying the whole thing. He is carrying the heavy weight. And then I remember other points when I was holding my end and he was holding his end. And I remember we were like going around a corner and all of a sudden he would just like pull me. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess we're gonna do that. And then there was other times where I was making the wrong move and he would just like correct me. And I'm just like kind of good. He was just moving the thing and I was just basically along for the ride. It's kind of how it worked. And I think that in some way, that's a little bit of what he's saying about the Holy Spirit. What's the Holy Spirit do? He does the heavy lifting. And I think that what happens is he supports the right moves that we're making, and then he corrects and he adjusts the wrong ones. This is how he works. So practically speaking, how does that play out? How does this Holy Spirit help us? So let me just give us three practical ways that I think the Spirit helps us as we look to wrap up our message here today. So the Holy Spirit helps us. How? How does he help us? First and foremost, I think the Holy Spirit helps us by translating our heart to God's heart and aligning our imperfect prayers to God's perfect will. How does the Holy Spirit help us? I think one of the ways that the Holy Spirit helps us is that he translates our heart to the heart of God, to the mind of God. And I believe that he takes our imperfect prayers, which are often imperfect, and he translates those and he adjusts those and he gives them to God in accordance with his will. Uh, Let me show you exactly where I'm getting this from. Here's what it says in Romans 8. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Now look at this. We don't know what we ought to pray for. We don't know. And can I just say, I'm guessing I'm not the only one. I'm really thankful that the Bible says this. We don't know what we ought to pray for. Can I just tell you, there's so many times I feel that way. I don't know what to pray for. I don't know. And what I love about this passage is not only does it say that 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 that's okay, It actually says that's expected. We're not gonna know. We live in the space between, there's things we can't see. We don't understand all of God's purposes and the suffering in front of us. There's stuff we don't know. And the Bible says, 
We're not gonna know what to pray for. But here's what I love. The Bible says, and you should. It doesn't say that. The Bible says, you don't know what to pray for, but you know what? Guess who's there? The Holy Spirit. And what's he gonna do? He's gonna help you in your weakness. And how's he gonna help you? He's gonna intercede for you with through wordless groans. And he, look at this, the Spirit who searches your hearts. The Spirit knows your heart. The Spirit knows the desires that are put inside of you. The Spirit knows what you're going through. He understands every detail of what's happening in your heart. But not only does he know your heart, look at this. He also knows the mind of God. And so he knows our hearts, and he knows God's heart. And he knows, he knows our minds, and he knows the mind of the Spirit. And the Bible says he intercedes for us because God's, with, for God's people in accordance with the will of God. So what's that mean? It means the Holy Spirit does the heavy lifting. He searches our heart and he translates those things to the Father. The Holy Spirit knows exactly what God wants for you in the circumstance that you're facing right now. He knows that. And he also knows your heart and he's gonna take our prayers and he's gonna translate those things to the heart of the Father. Listen, here's the truth. Our prayers a lot of times are skewed. A lot of times our prayers are imperfect and we don't see things entirely clearly and our prayers are sometimes misaligned with the will of God. If you don't believe me, just think about if God give you, gave you everything that you prayed for when you were 13 years old. Imagine the disaster that that would be, right? If he did. And the point is God knows your heart and he knows the mind of God and he's gonna, he's gonna intercede for us in that place. I think it's interesting. Uh, one of the most common questions that I've gotten through this series, I've got it a handful of times, is people have asked me the question, is it okay to pray to the Holy Spirit, to pray, like to address the Holy Spirit in prayer? And by the way, I just want to say, that is such a good question. That's such a, a really observant question. And, uh, and let me just give you, if I can, what I believe is kind of the quick answer, if, if that's helpful. And I would say this, uh, nowhere in the Bible are you ever gonna see that we are told to pray to the Holy Spirit? You're never gonna find a verse that says that. Nor do you find any examples in the Bible of anyone praying to the Holy Spirit. You don't ever see that. It's never kind of said in the Bible. But having said that, I just wanna say this. If you pray to the Holy Spirit, I don't think that means that God is like, "Mm -mm, nope, wrong name, get it right or I'm not listening. Like, I don't think that's how it works, right? Father, Son, Spirit, same God. I think you can totally pray to the Holy Spirit. I think that's fine. However, I do want to say this. I think that there's actually some richness in understanding what the Bible teaches about this. Because here's what the Bible's going to say. If you want to be really technical, the Bible's going to say that we are to pray to the Father. So when they said, teach us to pray, what did Jesus say? Pray our Father. We pray to the Father in the name of the Son, in the name of Jesus Christ, and by the means of the Holy Spirit, so when people say, um, should I pray to the Holy Spirit? My answer is, well, actually, it's probably more like this. I don't know if you can pray without the means of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't even entirely understand what I'm saying to you right now, but I think it's something like that, all right? So how does the Holy Spirit help us? He uh, translates our heart to God's heart, and he takes our imperfect prayers, and he presents them perfectly to God. Secondly, the Holy Spirit groans with us, and the Holy Spirit groans for us. The Holy Spirit groans with and for us. I don't know if you guys noticed in this passage, did you notice the ridiculous amount of groaning that's happening in these verses? This is what really struck me when I read this. I'm like, everything is groaning in this passage. Creation is groaning. And then we ourselves are groaning. And then the Bible says that right there in the midst of all that, the Spirit is right there and he's groaning with us and he is groaning for us. And I gotta tell you, I think that this is actually something very beautiful that the Bible is telling us that in a broken and groaning world is a broken and groaning people. And right there with them is the Holy Spirit who is helping us and who is groaning with us and is groaning for us. Listen to me, the Bible never promised us, God never promised us groan-free days. It never did, not in this life. In fact, could I just be real honest with you? I think that if we're doing it right and if we're following Jesus, the more that we're, living out this life in Christ, the more groaning is coming for us. I think that's true. That in the same way that, that the now and the not yet, the more that those two things converge, the greater amount of unease and discomfort comes. And I think that that's for us too. But here is the beauty of what this passage is telling us, is that when we groan, we don't groan alone. When we groan, God himself meets us in those moments. 
Can I just tell you, I think one of the most powerful and one of the most intimate ministries of the Holy Spirit is only discovered in the place of suffering. Some of you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. There is an intimacy that can be found when you find yourself in that place. And so the spirit groans. And I'll tell you what I love about this passage. I think what it tells us is, sometimes when we come to God, all we have is groans. We don't have anything else but groans. And I think what this passage is telling us is, you know what, that's all you need. That's all you need. And the Holy Spirit's gonna help you in your weakness. And so I don't know if you guys have ever experienced this. I know I have. I come to God and I got nothing but groans. I got nothing but, and I, I'm, I'm thinking about a family in our church who's going through something hard or a person who just got diagnosed with something, or I'm thinking about a divorce or some marriage that's ending, or I'm thinking about the, you know, the, the church in Iraq that's being persecuted. I'm thinking of Afghanistan. I'm thinking about all this stuff. And I'm just like, I'm going to God in prayer. And I'm like, I don't even know what to pray for. I don't even know what to ask. Because it's just like, man, I, I, I want to pray for your will, but I don't know what it is, and I don't understand, but you understand, and my heart is heavy, and it hurts me to think about this thing. And so sometimes I just go to God, and I'm just like, God, it's just like, and that's all I have. It's just like, Argh. and I feel like the Bible tells us that when we do that, when we go to God, and we're just like, God, the Holy Spirit is like, <laughs> and then God the Father's like, yeah, I get it. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I'm not entirely sure what I just did for the last 20 seconds. I'm not sure if that's preaching, but I think that's what's happening. That God says, you can take that to me and I will groan with you and for you and interpret that to the heart of God. And so the Holy Spirit helps us. He translates our heart to God's heart. He aligns our imperfect prayers to his will. He groans with us and for us. And lastly, the Holy Spirit, I think he gives us hope. And he gives us hope by taking our troubles out of the temporary context and putting them into the eternal. So the Holy Spirit's gonna pray with us. He's gonna groan for us. He's gonna do those things. But I think one of the other things the Holy Spirit does is he continues to pump vision into our hearts, the hope of what is to come. He, he is a deposit of what's guaranteed to come. I love what the Bible says. In this hope, we were saved. And by the way, just to be clear, hope is not wishful thinking. That's the way that we use the word hope. That's not the way the Bible uses the word hope. Hope is a certain, it's, it's a certainty, it is a confident assurance that I will apprehend the thing that I am hoping for. And so in this hope, we're saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, that which is not yet, we wait for it patiently. And the spirit is gonna help us in that weak place. He's gonna help us there. You know, I think what the Spirit is going to do is he's gonna to continue to draw our hope to the future of what is coming, the not yet. That though we groan, we don't groan as people who have no hope. We do have hope that everything that God said is true and that it'll be real. And I'll tell you, what I love so much is I think that if we were to go through all these verses and then we were to stop and not just briefly look at Romans 8.28, I think we would be falling short. Uh, Romans 8, 28, such a powerful verse. Uh, it's been said that Romans 8 is the, most, uh, is the best chapter in the Bible. Some people have said that. If that's true, then I would say Romans 8, 28 is probably the best verse in the Bible. Probably worth memorizing. Uh, I've heard it said that Romans chapter 8 is like the Himalayas of the Bible. It's the highest peaks in all of scripture. And if that's true, I would say Romans 8, 28 is like Mount Everest. And what is Romans 8, 28? And we know, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. We know that, listen, this verse is a fortress, is a fortress. Because what's it telling us? The spirit is reminding us that in all things, all things, like some things, no, like all things, like what kind of all things? The brokenness of creation, all things, the brokenness of our bodies, illness, sickness, tragedy, death, all things, sin, all things. In all things, he is working these things together for the good of those who love him. The Holy Spirit, I believe, is always trying to draw us to do this math. And as a result of that, we come to find out that our present sufferings aren't even worth comparing with the glory that is ours.
ask the band to come up, and as they do, uh, I'll end with this one last verse, and then we'll pray. 2 Corinthians 4. Therefore, we don't lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away because we live in tents. Inwardly, we're being renewed day by day because of the Spirit. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us all things, an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. And so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, not on what is now, but instead on what is unseen, what is not yet, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, I do just want to say thank you for these words that you've given us. You know, I, this picture of what the reality that we face is, our present sufferings, is one that's true, and it's one that your word reveals to us. And I don't know if we would come to all of this on our own. So thank you that you have revealed your word to us, that we could know you and that we could know reality. But God, thank you that you've given us the spirit, that there is the inbreaking of a new creation that comes because of your spirit inside of us. And so Father, I pray right now that for many of us who are here, that your spirit would help us in our weakness. Help us not be afraid to pray even when we don't know what to say. You promised us that we're not gonna know what to say. And so help us to come boldly to you, knowing that you know our heart and that you know the heart of God and that you'll translate those things to the heart of the Father in, the perf- in his perfect will. Thank you that you're for us. Thank you that you've grown with us, that you're with us in the hardest places. Help us not to, to run from you in hardship, but to run to you, knowing that you care. And Jesus, please help us to do the math where we can see the hope that is ours. Help us to realize the incredible weight of glory that far outweighs the temporary things that we're facing in the now. So God, I pray that as we worship and we sing, that the realities of what we're singing, the truths that we're declaring, that they would not just become things that we say, but they would become realities that are true in every fiber of our being. We pray these things in Christ's name.